hey, we've come to chapter 18 in our studies in 1 Samuel. And if you've been with us, or if you can count, you know that chapter 18 comes on the heels of chapter 17, right? And chapter 17 is that familiar epic story of David and Goliath, right? I mean, come on. I mean, I'm just going to speak for all the little people in the world right now. David crushed it. (laughs) Right? Man. His bold faith in action. The ruddy little shepherd boy without any instruments of war brought down Goliath. (laughs) Amen? You know that chapter ended with kind of a, if you remember, kind of a post-fight interview, right? Like the post-game interview, Saul said, I want to talk to this guy. And I don't know what was said in totality in that meeting as that chapter ended, after David had conquered Goliath. Is all I know is that he took Goliath's head into that interview, it said. Probably dragging on the ground, right? And I don't know what was said in, in its entirety, but I do know his actions in that epic battle, and what he said during and after that in that interview inspired a couple of people. And we'll see that in chapter 18. It inspired Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. It motivated him to love, we will see in the first part of this chapter 18. It lit him up. It melted him. It does what love always does. It brings people together And it puts others before self. We'll see Jonathan being moved and inspired by love when he saw chapter 17 play its way out with this hero of the faith, David. But but we'll see the rest of the chapter is dedicated to another motive, another inspiration. And it's the other great motivator in life besides love. We'll see that it's fear. We'll see that that act lit a fear of God in the heart of King Saul, right? And we'll see that today. That he was afraid, threatened, envious, very worried about his subordinate, David, the shepherd boy, because of this magnificent act. So today we're going to see two of the greatest motivators in life. I think history proves love and fear. And we're going to see how they play out. And we're going to see David in the middle with a little bit of tension between each, and we'll see what God shows us. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, that's the post-fight interview, right? The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So what you have there is the start of probably the most celebrated friendship 
in all of human history (laughs) between two men. It was a friendship based on love. It's the model friendship. Jonathan somehow saw and heard something in David in that event and maybe in that interview that inspired him to love him and make a covenant with him based on love. And what a friendship that is. You know, if you have a friend who loves you through the thick and thin, that's a wonderful thing. Amen. I wonder if Jonathan was present when David barked those famous words that I love. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? I wonder if he heard that. That gives me chills. All these men of war, a very tall, no offense, Saul, but that doesn't make you great. A very tall king, right? Tough soldiers with instruments of war, all scared. And then this little ruddy little shepherd boy says, who is this guy who's defying us? Because we belong to the Lord. I wonder if that inspired him a little bit. Or if when he overheard him say to his father, King Saul, you know what? (laughs) The Lord preserved me from the paw of the lion and the bear. He will let me preserve now against this giant. Amen? Goliath, you want a man? You're calling for a man? I'm God's man, and I'm coming for you. And I may be small, but I have the Lord on my side. Amen? I wonder if that lit up Jonathan. I think it did. I think God showed him this is the one. This is the one. And it united these two together. And that is not insignificant. Love seeks to unite people. It goes out of its way to try to close that gap. Amen? Jonathan, in a second, recognized the great faith in the love that David had for his God and surrendered and said, I love you and my soul is with you. I think we're kindred spirits. Maybe he saw himself. Do you remember when we were first introduced to to Jonathan? Chapter 14, everybody else was hiding in caves (laughs) and Jonathan got a great victory by him and his armor bearer coming out from under that and going, say, God is going to give us favor. Let's trust the Lord. I think maybe he saw a man of action just like himself and said, that's the guy. That's the guy. My soul will be knit to this guy. I will make a covenant with this guy. I think love does kind of bring us together. You remember Paul right before he talked to his believers there at Philippi when he's about ready to show them God's humble love through Jesus Christ in chapter 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of one accord, one mind, one love, right? That's the idea. Love makes a seek unity, and that's what Jonathan did. It brought a crown prince together with a poor farmer's boy is what it did, and that's what love can do. That's the first part. If you notice something else there, love, other, uh, love also puts others first, and it's really the hallmark of love. That's what it is. If you noticed, when he made a covenant, Jonathan did with David, he said he stripped himself of his robe. 
and gave it to David, his armor, even his sword, even his bow, and even his belt. What that means is this was the crown prince. If there was one person who would be threatened by David, shouldn't it be the next in line? This was the oldest son of the king. He was the crown prince. And just like that, when God, I think, showed him this was the, this was the one, this was the guy who I will send my son to be in his lineage, he immediately gave it up. No competition, no fear, no threatening, none of that. No fear of failure, not living up to this guy, no comparisons. He simply surrendered, gave over his birthright. He gave him his insignias of being next in line. He gave him his sword, his tunic, his robe. David, you are the one. I'm going to make a covenant to love you and put you first. That's a wonderful, beautiful love. I would say this. He gave up all his ambition. And this is a different culture. That was everything back then. That was everything. And he gave it up like that for love's sake. Jonathan was a big person. And there's a lot to admire about Jonathan as we follow him along. Very, very, very big person. He was okay being second place because he knew it was God's will. That's a gem of a person, big person. You know who the biggest person is, though? Oh, you know who it is. It's the God-man. It's Jesus Christ. He's the biggest of all people. Because what love really does, if you want to know an example of love for us today as Christians, listen to me. It's that someone <laughs> became humble and gave it all and put you before self. Became poor so you could become rich, right? When the eternal son of God took that first giant leap and became the likeness of a man. Humbled himself even greater to a servant and humbled himself even again to die a criminal's death. Jesus, the creator of the ends of the earth, did that for you and I all the while putting you over himself. Amen? That's love. If you want to know love, just look at the cross, right? God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave us Jesus, right? If you want to know that God loves you, the proof is the other John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, that he laid down his life for you and I. Love puts others first. And Jonathan got this. And it's so refreshing to read of a friendship of a man who probably was in line there for the, for the throne and gave it all up and gave it all up for someone else and made a covenant to stick with it. Amen? So a great motive, a great inspiration out of chapter 17 is love. And as we saw, it brings people together. We see this great friendship starting. We also see the proof that, that love puts others first. We see a real big man in Jonathan. We also see a sign in Jesus Christ there that he's the biggest of men because he put us first. And then it gets ugly from verse six on because there's another force at work and it's not love, it's fear. Let's check it out. Saul has a different take 
on the exact same events, doesn't he? Let's read it. Verse six, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. Oh, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have only ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the whole kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Ooh, little different take on the same event. I have this partner at my work. Dr. Walters, and him and I are kind of far side buffs. You know the far side cartoons? I love far sides. Who likes the far sides? Pretty good. He's got a lot of dandies, but he has one that he framed and it's up in his room. And I love working in his rooms because I always just chuckle. I look at it every time. It's a picture of an optometrist with an ophthalmoscope looking in someone's eye, and the caption says something like this it goes, Just as I suspected, Mr. Smith, the evil eye. <laughs> I wish it was that easy <laughs> to, to diagnose the evil eye, the stink eye. Saul was eyeing David. And what that does is, what fear always does is it gives you a bad eye. When you're scared and you're afraid, it gives you poor perspectives and you view people in extremes. And that's what Saul did. He was fearing that someone else was going to get all the glory. He was uh, afraid and overreacting to the praise that David got. I mean, think about this just for a minute. What's so, I mean, what's so wrong about the song that they sang, if you really want to know? I mean, I, I know that they ascribed more glory to David, and that's really what got him. But that's a pretty generous song for what just happened, don't you think? Because as I read the story, you had a bunch of people sitting around afraid. They would not go fight Goliath, would they? They wouldn't do it. They were, they were so scared that they wouldn't go fight him. They let him taunt him. He mocked the Lord and mocked Lord's people. I think it's generous to say he struck down his thousand. Because I could make up a better song right here, right? Like Saul is a yellow belly chicken and he hid and he let a farmer boy do his job for him. How do you like that song, Saul? You guys like that? I just made that up. <laughs> but, it, but it's true, right? So he's dealing in hyperbole because he's afraid, right? He's threatened. I like the saying, oh, they gave him more glory. Now what's left? He gets the whole kingdom? Like he went to an extreme. Do you ever talk to people like that? Like your kids? No, I, no. Just stay in the middle somewhere, guys, <laughs> right? Up, down, extremes, over-exaggerating. And I will tell you this. It's a bad sign for a leader 
to be threatened by the success of their subordinates. Did you know that? When you see that, you're seeing a very poor leader. Mark it. <laughs> in politicians, in bosses, in husbands, whatever it is, if they have a problem with the success of someone under them, that's a, that's a red flag to me. That is not a good thing. Man, I remember my mentor growing up through optometry, Dr. Kenji Hamada. He was a lot of things, but one thing he always did for me, wherever we were together, he was a nationally renowned speaker. We'd go travel and listen. He was a big wig and I wasn't, but I was breaking into his practice. And you know what he always did when he introduced himself? I want to point out my associates in the back, Dr. Dan Vidlak and Dr. Scott Walters. And I'm like, who is this guy? Who are we? We're, we're no, nobody knows us. <laughs> he was always elevating, always trying to elevate the people under him because it you know what he knew? It reflected well on him when we did well. Saul had a choice to look at things that way, yet he didn't. He was threatened by someone else getting the glory. It's a bad sign. If Jonathan was a big person, his dad, Saul, was a very small, petty person. Amen? Check out what else it does. Verse 10, fear will give you the evil eye. It'll get you speaking and looking at people in extremes and hyperbole. But it also makes us desperate. Check it out in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved or babbled within the house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. <laughs> what a scene! Wow, what a scene. And the first thing that really intrigues me is this phrase. And it can be problematic. It said the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. God sent a harmful spirit to someone? That's hard to reconcile just a little, don't you think? It's not the first time it happened. You may have noticed back in chapter 16 when David was anointed to king. You remember when Samuel came there and dumped the oil on him from the horn and it said the Holy Spirit rushed upon him? Next verse, the Lord left, <laughs> left Saul, didn't he? And he was exchanged for a harmful spirit. And do you remember what his servants said? What happened when, when Saul got the harmful spirit? It said, the servants are like, we got to get someone to calm him down. Does anybody play any instrument? Maybe there's a musical ministry that can get this thing under control. And do you remember that was the first time David came into service to King Saul? The servant said, I know a guy, Right? The son of Jesse, I know this guy. He plays a sweet instrument. He's talented. And so he would play for Saul. And it said that Saul's soul was refreshed. And the spirit left him. Interesting. Very interesting. So then we go to chapter 18. And there it was. They're sitting in the chambers. 
And Saul got the harmful spirit again from the Lord. And I don't know how you reconcile that. To me, there's a lot of things I just don't know in the Bible. I'm just going to be honest with you. This is one of those things that it's hard to reconcile. And I'll just share with you why I don't have a problem with it. I think there's things in the spiritual realm we have no clue about. Zero. The spiritual realm is, is real. And some of us have experienced some of these things. When you go to different countries, when you talk to someone who's high on drugs, it's weird. And this guy had a harmful spirit and he was babbling like an idiot. And there was something weird about that. And I think if we're honest and smart and wise, we say there's some things we just don't know about, but I'm going to be aware of. And how I rest that God sent that spirit to Saul, to me, is the providence of God. That's what I rest on. That's how I do. And it's a great, uh, the, the, my favorite definition of the providence of God is from J. Vernon McGee. And I found it when I was studying the book of Esther, and I'll just read it for you, because to me it sums up. And I, at the end, I say I'm okay with God sending and doing what he needs to do to get his will done. The providence of God is the means by which God directs all things, both animate and inanimate, seen and unseen, good and evil, towards his worthy purpose, which means his will must finally and finally prevail. Amen? The hand of God is in <laughs> the glove of human events, right? It's that unseen rudder in history. It's God. Amen? And I'm okay with him using, as he see fits, spirits to move a king like David so Jesus Christ can be born under that lineage and be the savior of the world. Amen? I'm okay with that. That's how I reconcile it. Good luck with that one. <laughs> Fear makes us desperate. He got so crazy, he threw a spear. It was in his hand. He said, why not? I got a spear in my hand. Which... <laughs> Be careful what you have in your hands, right? I'd be careful what you put in your hands. You get in the wrong set of mind. You, you start giving aid to your flesh. Next thing you know, you're throwing spears. He's chucking spears. Awesome thing is, it said David evaded it twice. So I don't know if David picked it up and gave it back to him and said, try again. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but he said twice. That's a crazy scene, don't you think? Proving that fear makes us desperate. But unlike before in chapter 16, where Saul let David's music ministry minister to him, he still made his choice to throw the spear. He had a way of escape. He didn't. He gave in to the violence. And that's what fear can do when you put someone in a corner. Nobody more dangerous than someone who's afraid, right? You scare someone and put them in the corner and see what happens. You might get scratched. Check out these next two verses. Because it also proves to us that fear will drive us away from each other. And we'll find the root in these next couple of verses of Saul's fear. Check it out. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Here's why. Because... The Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 
So Saul removed him from his presence and made him the commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Verse 14 is a gem. Listen to this. And David had success and used wisdom in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Listen, man, Saul had a guilty conscience. That's why he was afraid of David. It didn't have much to do with David. Listen, the root of why Paul or Saul was fearful of David was his own guilty conscience, right? God had already, through Samuel, told him, I'm rejecting you, Saul. You're disqualifying sin and pride. I'm done with you. I've rejected you. The kingdom I will give to your neighbor. Remember? Chapter 13, and then finally in chapter 15. You're, I'm done with you. God had already told Saul he was not to be the king of Israel anymore. Right? But instead of doing the honorable thing and stepping aside and letting God's chosen one take his spot, he hung on to his power and his throne like with white knuckles, right? Insecure about when and how and what was going to happen. When was God going to take it away from him, right? So everything was a conspiracy theory, right? That's what made him afraid. That's what put the fear of God in his heart. He knew God had left him and he was with David because he sinned and was disqualified. That's exactly what made him scared was his guilty conscience leading to insecurity born out of his own guilt. It made him afraid. It made him overreact to David's popularity, right? It made him act like a crazy person. And then finally, it made him, in this verse, if you saw, it said, Saul, send him away. Get out of, I don't even want to see you out of my peripheral vision, David. I can't stand it. Because fear does that. It separates people, right? But my favorite part of that little passage is verse 14. That's a keeper and that's a gem. And David has been pretty passive so far. But listen to this verse describing David's mindset and what he was doing during this great tumultuous time of sandwiched between this tension of somebody greatly loving you and praising you to someone trying to kill you. He said, verse 14, David had success and acted wise in all his undertakings because the Lord was with him. Listen to me. There is so much to admire about David. He had women in every city coming outside their houses, shaking their booties and their tambourines, saying, David's the greatest. He had the king's eldest son saying, me Lord. I will bow to you. I will give you my insignia of majesty. It's yours like that. And how did he react? How did David react? Well, with wisdom, with humility. There is a lot to admire about David. Also, through the tension of strife he had. I mean, 
one of my favorite verses, because I'm from a big family, is when David actually came to save the day. Do you remember what Eliab, his brother, said to him? Don't you have some sheep to take care of? So patronizing. Talk about a victim. If someone could be a victim nowadays, that David was a victim. He was vertically challenged and no one respected him. He had no safe space, David. I'm joking, of course. Oh, David ain't no victim. He just had a crazy man throw spears at him twice. He actually gave him a second chance at it. How did he react? Verse 14, he acted wisely and had success because he was with the Lord and the Lord was with him. Amen. And I'm going to submit to you today, I think I know why. Yes, the Lord was with him, but David was tried and trued in the fields, <laughs> watching the sheep. His life as a shepherd was God's training ground for David to be David in only the way that David could be David and be God's servant. Amen? He was out there. It says that he grabbed lion by the beard who was trying to harm his sheep. This little guy. Again, he's my hero. <laughs> he killed a lion with his hands. Was there any fanfare? David, home run. Did women come out and, and worship him in the cities? Did his brothers say, man, you're better than us. You're awesome. You're David. No, he was out there all by himself, learning to be content, learning to be humble, learning to serve the Lord. And that was enough for him. He said, I'm doing this for you. These are your sheep. I'm working heartily unto you. I'm a shepherd, and that's what you made me. And I will play my instrument, and I will kill lions with you, Lord. So when the women came out and worshiped him, huh, he knew a, there was a big difference between a fan and a friend. Amen? Because he was a shepherd boy out in the field doing his thing for the Lord in the Lord alone. Amen? The bad times. Oh, I'm a victim. My brother just talked derogatory towards me. If I had a dime for every time one of my sons said that about my other sons, I would be wealthy and retired. It's like no one likes a whiner and no one likes a victim. Just go hit him back. <laughs> Just kidding. I'd ever said that. Far as you know. Right? I mean, here's the thanks that David gets <laughs> for saving the day, killing Goliath. The king threw spears at him and was jealous of him. I would have, if it was me, I would have said, hey, Saul, I just prefer you say thanks. I saved you and the country with my slingshot, you coward. So when he's out in those fields and it's cold and he's fighting off the bears and fighting off the lions and he's alone by himself, when someone throws a spear at him, he says, so what? The Lord is my protector. So what? I've been here before. I'm hardened. I'm gritty. I'm ruddy. I'm David. And I'm the Lord's servant. 
and I'm after his heart, and that's all that really matters. I'm able to please God now before men. Amen? That's David. And sometimes we make this error as grandparents and parents. We want to protect. We want to make and coddle our, our, our kids. And I submit to you today that I'm guilty of that as well. But I think what makes people tough and gritty is an environment where they can learn to trust the Lord through hard times and good times. That they're on their own with the Lord and you don't save them. You're not promoting them. You're not breathing into this victimhood thing. You're just letting them be God's kid and see what they can figure out. And make a suggestion. Get your kids into something that's a little bit gritty. America's about gone right now. Am I, speaking, am I speaking to anybody but myself? Get your kids into something that makes them sweat. Gets them a little bit dirty. Take He, he was a shepherd boy. Get, try 4-H. It was, it's not a bad thing to get dirty and to take care of animals. To be in those quiet mo- moments mucking your stall, talking to God. Amen? Get your kids into a gritty sport. May I suggest Wrestling. It's about as gritty as it gets. In that sport, no one wears a red shirt. Not the touchy this guy. No, man, it's, you and I are going for it. We're going to fight here for a little bit. And when it's over, we're both going to be really tired and tried and true. And some of us who have a little bit of a blue-collar background have learned to appreciate some of that upbringing of a few decades ago. Right? I mean, I grew up a son of a mason. And you know what that made me by default? A hot carrier, right? <laughs> Mostly for, for cheap. That's what we did. Man, looking back on it, I'm super thankful. I was good at it. I was little and I couldn't be super strong, but I was fast. I learned how to take care of two or three masons at the, by myself. And I didn't get much adulation. I got a paycheck sometimes. And that was about it. But I did my work. And it gave me a sense of pride. And it gave me a sense of grittiness. So that when, and this is what my dad's, one of his favorite sayings, when he would work me really hard after becoming a pretty good wrestler, he always wanted to know one thing after work. Was this harder than wrestling practice? That's what he wanted to know. I said, yeah, dad. It was harder than my workout. <laughs> you betcha. It was good. He's preparing me. So it was no surprise to me that when I got a little bit of attention in a sport that most people don't care about, I didn't really care. I didn't. I had a blue-collar mentality. I was going to hook it up, and I was going to fire it up, and I was going to go for it. And you know what? If people appreciated that, God bless them. (laughs) I never had a problem with getting a big head about wrestling. There's always someone better than you in that sport, right? Gritty. You should try wrestling. One of my favorite stories, I just share one story, kind of off, a little bit off topic, but and there's, okay, it's Oklahoma State, Oklahoma wrestling, bedlam dual week, so I'm, I'm going to break a rule and I'm going to talk about Oklahoma State. My son wrestles for Oklahoma, so I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but one of my favorite stories about wrestling being a gritty sport is a story that Chris Pendleton tells. He's the head coach at Oregon State now, he used to wrestle at Oklahoma State, and he was talking about when he was a freshman at Oklahoma State. And how hard it was wrestling in the Big 12 day in and day out with the practices. Oklahoma State, probably the most decorated um, NCAA 
wrestling team of all time, 34 national championships. And he said he was the first week there fighting, going live, and he caught an elbow. And he was just getting the tar beat out of him as a freshman. And he's telling the story. I was getting pounded on. And he catches an elbow, knocks about three teeth out, spits them out in his hand, and goes, that's it. I'm out of here. Starts to head for the door, heading for the trainer. And before he got there, Coach John Smith, the head coach, <laughs> cuts him off at the door and says, son, I don't think they're putting those back in today. You should just give me those teeth and finish your go. <laughs> He said he poured out his teeth in the coach's hand and he went back and finished his live go. I was like, whoa. He said he knew he was in for a long four years, right? I wonder if he gets discouraged when someone calls him a bad name or doesn't like the way he coaches. I don't know. Probably he's pretty gritty. Listen, what made David behave wisely and have success was because the Lord was with him. And that he was groomed by the Lord in the fields, tending the sheep. And so the, he didn't go to his head on the highs and he didn't go down to the lows. Because here's what I know about most people. Most people are corrupted equally by praise, right? As they are crippled by criticism. It's that yin and that shame. It's so inspiring and so admirable to look at David and go, he stayed down the middle through it all. And I think it was his blue collar upbringing. That's my commentator. Go do the vocations, boys and girls. David was blue collar. The rest of this chapter has to do with Saul just scheming, manipulating, tricking, trapping David to get rid of him because he was afraid of him. That's all it is. And we'll see that Saul takes matters into his own hands. He tries to control the situation. And really, that's what manipulation is. It's really the lack of respect or trust in God's sovereignty, really. You try to work out your own plan, right? And that's what I think deceit is also. It's just the lack of respect for God's truth. You're bending the truth, right? You're deceiving. You're telling half-truths. Let's check it out. First one is when Saul promises his oldest daughter to, to uh, David. Then Saul said to David, verse 17, Here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time that Meribah, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given away to Adriel, the Meholite, for a wife. So there you go. I don't know if anybody caught that <laughs> or followed the last chapter, but Saul offered his eldest daughter in marriage. Did anybody catch the little backtracking on his promise? What was the guy who killed Goliath supposed to get? Unhinged, unattached. This is what you get if you killed Goliath. I'm going to give you my daughter. So now, instead of just saying, here's, your, here's the daughter, he says, you can have my daughter only be valiant for me and go do more for me. He's changing the terms. What a manipulator. In, so that he thought the Philistines would kill David, right? It's prideful. That's why God resists him. 
God resists the proud. But as we'll see, he gives grace to the humble. And watch, that's what saved David. Did you see his response when he offered this? Go be valiant. You can have my eldest daughter. He said, who am I to be? Who am I in my family? I'll tell you who you are, David. You just crushed it. You just killed Goliath. Everybody loves you. Everybody. The women love you. The people love you. Saul's staff loves you. That's who you are. No, he said, who am I? Who am I? I'm Jesse's son. Who are we? We can't be related to the king. That's what saved him, you know, through that trap. He was humble. Well, Saul continues his manipulative ways when he offers another daughter, Michael. Check it out. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul this. And the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. <laughs> what a flattery person. And all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemy. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistine. So he offers as second prize his other daughter. And it's such a, this guy has no, he, man, talk about using people for your own purposes. His daughter genuinely loved David. And Saul thought, ding, 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 ding. You know what I can do? Why don't I use my daughter's love for a man to get the man killed? That's, a, that's an evil man. He's despicable. Do you, I wonder if you ever thought of what his daughter Michael would feel like when her husband died, if his plan actually worked. Mm. He used flattery and deceit. Tell these words in the ears of David. Tell him that the king loves him. You're in good favor, right? David, again, is saved by his humility. He said, this is a big thing. I'm poor. I don't have, I don't have a dowry for a king's daughter. Forget it. Setting a trap, Saul says, why don't you just kill more Philistines? Bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. <laughs> awesome. David's like, all right, I don't know. Sounds good. I don't have to pay. I just get to go kill some more people. Saul hoping that he would fall in battle. Check out what he does. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose, went along with his men, and killed not 100, but 200 men. And David brought their foreskins 
which were given in full number to the king, that he might be the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. <laughs> awesome. Just a little bonus in there. Give you another hundred. No, hundred foreskins. It's 200. No problem. That's <laughs> just awesome to me. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. The Bible's awesome, is it not? It's just awesome. It's just awesome. You know what happened to Saul in all these manipulative traps? It's Proverbs chapter 26. When you roll a stone, it comes back on you, right? If you dig a pit, you fall in it, right? It doesn't work. God delivers David from all those traps. And Saul, as we all do, when we're manipulative, when we're deceitful, when we're prideful and we try to make our own route and not follow God's, we, want, we eventually will run smack dab into and against God's sovereignty. And you run into biblical principles like you cannot fight God. You cannot fight God's sovereignty and his purposes will always prevail. And this one David is a special human being mostly because he had a heart that was fashioned and after the Lord. He wanted the whole thing and God wanted him holy. Amen? This was a good man with plenty of stuff to look up to. And as we go about our day today, I want you to think about those two forces. Those two inspirational forces that came out of an awesome event there when David killed Goliath. We see love, which unites, which puts others first, right? We can mark this friendship. Keep an eye on it. It's a model friendship based on love. But you also can see in tension another very effective motivator in life called fear. And it'll get you, super, it'll get you far. But there's no way to live. There's no way to live. It brings people apart. It makes you act crazy, right? You don't see people the way they ought to be seen, the way God sees them. And we know who wins between those tensions, don't we? Between those two motivating forces. So the Bible says, the Apostle John, perfect love casts out all fear. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We're thankful for your example in David. We're thankful for, for everything you give us. I pray that we go about our day looking up to you and living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys.